Good evening, everyone. And if you could turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel 9.24. Daniel 9.24. I'm going to stay. And as I can show you on the slide on the board here, what we'll be looking at tonight uh, is uh, the seventh hour in this study of the day of the Lord. And tonight we'll be looking at Daniel 9.26, uh, where we're talking about the events that uh, were fulfilled uh, in this prophecy uh, between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. So... Uh, there's a gap between the completion of the, four, the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week, and that's uh, been a, uh, a big uh, bone of contention in uh, Christian circles. Uh, most Christians don't believe what we believe. When most people are not dispensationalists in, in, in America. But uh, the, so there's uh, the preterists like to think that this Daniel 9.27 has been fulfilled in history, and there's no gap between the 69th and the 70th week, but there is, and we'll give our reasons for it. In fact, as I think I've said in the past, uh, you know, I, with Edu, where I have a lot of my articles, uh, I think over, over 700 articles, and so they can, risk, they can, when they download it, they can give you a reason why they're downloading it. And a lot of times people discuss my articles with me, and uh, different, different types of people. It could be a scholar, it could be a pastor, it could be a layperson. And um, one of the things that they always, this, this is a big uh, um, kind of controversial, is this, this whole thing with the 70th week. And, uh, and uh, so I, I find it fascinating because they think the Antichrist is not being spoken about making that covenant in Daniel 9.27. So there's other things too, which I'll bring out and have been bringing out. So it should be at Daniel 9.24. And again, we're looking at the events between the 69th and the 70th week, which is going to take us tonight to this 26th verse in Daniel chapter 9. And uh, just remember, we have uh, next Wednesday, we're going to be doing our corporate prayer meeting. At 6 p.m., we get a good turnout for that. So the last Wednesday of each month, we have the uh, corporate prayer meeting, and that's going to fall on the 31st, the last day of the month. Also, uh, talking to Fred, we're going to do the uh, Sunday, February 4th, we're going to have the, the business meeting. So we'll do that in the second session, and we'll be observing the Lord's Supper because it's the first Sunday of the month. So I'll, we'll do uh, uh, a lesson in the first session, and then we'll have the business meeting. Then we'll do the Lord's Supper, and we'll be out of here. So that's, uh, that's going to be February 4th. Okay, February 4th. And also, if you can talk about prayers, it's really bizarre lately, but um, last couple, last week, a couple, this last couple of days, actually. No, I could, yeah, last couple of weeks. Uh, keep in prayer, the woman named, the young woman named Patrice, and I believe it's her boyfriend, Marcus. Uh, she came to me last night, I was down at SIP having a cigar, and there was hardly anybody there, but I was, it was nice, but I had these, Great conversations with uh, two people and three people all together. And uh, so this woman I had met before with her her her, uh, her boyfriend, and they're, they're Christians. And she last night she was like she came to me and she said, "We'll, we'll be there Sunday." And I was like, "Okay." And so keep her in prayer, and uh, her her boyfriend. I think it's his boyfriend. Her boyfriend Marcus, and he's a cool guy. He took care of his mother who had uh, dementia, and uh, so we had. That's how we struck up the conversation because I was talking about with my mother. And then there's another interesting individual. Um, it was just me and him in the, in, the, in the room, and we were talking. He goes, so you, uh, his name is Michael. And it turns out his father was a pastor. He's like around my age, and he's, um, he's, uh, he works like, uh, this guy's really, really fascinating. He's a big computer geek guy, but he can hack into computers and stuff. It's like he works for the... He's worked for the, with the police in this area. He's gone after uh, part of, um, uh, he, uh, 
when they're trying to prosecute somebody for child porn and everything, he's been a part of those things and, and getting these guys. And uh, really fascinating study. So he's worked with the FBI. He's worked with the police in this area. Uh, he was telling me that, uh, I guess in, uh, what's the name of the town? I can't remember. In Alabama, there's um, big time child point cases around that area that for, some, for some reason. And so uh, talking to him about it, he's a Christian. He, he got into this guy named Les Feldick. I don't know if you've heard of Les. He was a great Bible teacher. He was on television. He passed away, went not too long ago, went home to be the Lord. He does what we, like the, the colonel did, not what I do, and, you know, he's expository type of teaching. So he was, so he got, uh, uh, we had a really great conversation, and then while we are talking, it was just he and I in the room, this other young man came over, his name's Jonah, and he friended me on Facebook today, so, and he came over and he was, wanted to hear our conversation, so he's a Christian, so he got our website, and so does Michael, and he knows, our, they know our address, so I know... Patrice and Marcus said they'd be here Sunday, so we'll see. You never know. People say that. So there's three people, uh, four people all together: Patrice, Marcus, and then Michael, and this kid Jonah. He's a young guy. He's a uh, he, he's a tennis. Uh, he got a um, he got a uh, what do you call it? Uh, scholarship for tennis. He's a really good tennis player and stuff. And uh, his father's in the military. And uh, so, anyways, uh, very interesting night last night. I was like all excited when I got home because it. And uh, anyway, so uh, that's you know positive old issue, you know. <laughs> we'll see. So keep that in prayer. So without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. I know what you all know. What to, you all know what to do looking around. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us. We thank you for the gift of this day. And uh, we know your words promised us not years and decades, and <laughs> but in days. So I just pray, Father, you help each one of us, if we're not doing it already, to live one day at a time. Yeah, we can plan, but uh, you know, to live our lives in the imminency of our death or the rapture, whichever might come first, and uh, make the most of each day. And we just thank you, Father, for your children who are here uh, with this uh, rainy, lousy, rainy day, overcast day, and uh, that have come here tonight, probably tired from their work week, and uh, so now they're here, and I just thank you for uh, leading them here and uh, being here this evening, and, uh, and I lift up each one of them, Father, wherever they might be in their walk with you or whatever struggles and trials and tribulations that they might have, I pray that you would help them and uh, bring in glory to you and Help them to uh, walk by faith and not by sight. And uh, I just thank you for uh, the, uh, the people in this ministry. I thank you, Father, for the positive volition that we do have, and it's indeed precious, uh, people who are part of the pivot and a remnant of believers in this country that, that still love your word and that uh, are the salt of this country. I just uh, thank you for them and others throughout this country that we don't know about. And I also uh, thank you for the leadership in this ministry. I just pray, Father, that you give all of us 
and the leadership of this church, the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this congregation in a fashion that uh, ministers to your people and brings glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, for tonight's class, the service. I pray the Spirit would work mightily through myself and the, the ch your children in the audience. I pray that you would help me to deliver your full counsel today with regards to uh, the Daniel 9.26 and the events that were prophesied and fulfilled uh, between the 69th and the 70th week. I just pray you help me to do so with reverence, respect, and power. I pray the Spirit use me mightily as his instrument and help me be sensitive to the Spirit's guides and direction. I also pray that you would work mightily and powerfully through your people. Help them by the Spirit to learn, understand, and to carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting today. And so as to make personal application, I pray that each person would be spoken to individually and all of us as a corporate unit. And I just pray as a result, all of us with one, one voice would uh, bring, sing your praises and the praises of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, you should be at Daniel 9.24. We're going to, as you see in the board again, this will be our seventh hour in this subject of the day of the Lord, and I don't know how long this is going to be. It's going to be probably at least a year uh, that this study will go, But because uh, we're going to cover a lot of things, and uh, a lot of doctrines are actually in this particular series, the day of the Lord. You're going to have uh, the, the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, we have the second advent of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, the rapture in relation to the tribulation period, why we are pre-trib and not post or mid-trib. We're going to be talking about that and the different views of the rapture. There's five different views. You might not realize five different views of the rapture and which one is the correct one. And We, we, we believe in a pre-trib rapture and that everybody goes up and gets their resurrection body at that time and it's a mystery doctrine and uh, known only to church age believers through the, the ministry of the Spirit to the apostles. And also we ought to be looking at the not only millennial reign but also uh, the... Um, We'll also see the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a lot of things that we'll be talking about in this study. And uh, we'll be talking, in the, with regards to the 70th week, uh, a lot of the movements of the Antichrist. We'll be talking a lot in the next, like, probably the next month or so, February, would be a lot of talk about the, the Antichrist. That'll take us to Daniel 9.27, but we'll also be in Daniel 11.36 to the end of that chapter, which talks about the movements of the Antichrist and his character. Daniel chapter 7 talks a lot about the Antichrist. He's called the Little Horn. So we'll be talking a lot about him and who he is and his character and his movements during uh, the 70th week of Daniel, in particular the last three and a half years of that 70th week, and then his demise. And so uh, this is, uh, there's a lot of exciting things here. And the, the great thing about uh, this, uh, we've studied actually the Day of the Lord in the beginning uh, hour, in the introduction, <clears throat> that we, there's many Day of the Lord prophecies that have been literally fulfilled in history. And we brought out those examples. But this is primarily the eschatological day of the Lord or the prophetic day of the Lord. And, uh, you know, we hear Paul, uh, you know, you hear the biblical writers in the, all over the Old Testament uh, talking about it, but uh, with different expressions like that day or the great day. But also you see it a couple, four times really in the New Testament. That's all. Peter, uh, Paul talks about it in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. And you see Second Peter does it as well. And so uh, they're talking about it. Peter, when Paul talks about it, uh, it's uh, regards to the, the, the day of the Lord in relation to the tribulation period and the second advent of Christ. So we'll be going to those passages too as well. So there's a lot of ground to cover. And my, uh, you know, one of the benefits of prophecy is, uh, is that it motivates us 
to live a godly life. We saw that right from the very first introduction of this subject in Second Peter when Paul talks about, you know, the, the, this present heavens and earth will be uh, dissolved with fire and that there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So thus he goes, oh, then what type of people shall we be? How should we conduct ourselves? And Paul does this in relation to the rapture and the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5. So we should be encouraging each other. We should be, it also should call, uh, cause us to live our lives in light of the imminency of the rapture of the church, which is imminent, could happen at any moment, not to mention our death could come first. So we need to, that, that, if we're doing that, we'll keep short accounts with God, meaning we'll confess our sins immediately, and we'll make learning and obeying God's word a top priority and being a good student with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that God gave us as trust, which we're going to have to give an account for at the Bema seat to see if we would merit rewards for being a good steward with those that fourfold stewardship. So there's a lot of things that, uh, and also far as, uh, and I've said this before as well, uh, one of the things that led me to the Lord was a guy who led me to the Lord was one of the guys I was he was like my mentor and guitar. He was like an older brother to me, big brother to me. I never had an older brother. And uh, he, he used, talked about prophecy quite a bit. So right, my first introduction really uh, to the Bible with regards to that. So I had a big jump on eschatology, you know, before I, I ever got into uh, Bob's ministry. But, uh, you know, so that, you know, people that are Christians today, you know, pastors and people I respect that uh, think that uh, you can't really talk the Bible with the unbelievers today especially in our country, because uh, people are not familiar with the Bible. 150 years, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe even 40 years ago, 30 years ago, you could talk to non-believers and they have a fam bit of a familiarity with the Bible. They not be, might not be Christians. And, uh, but, uh, so a lot of scholars today and pastors don't think that's possible to talk to the unbeliever about Jesus and, 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 and using the Bible because... Uh, they don't have a familiarity with the Bible. I say that's baloney, and why I say that is because everybody wants to know the future. Why do you think people like the, the tarot cards and astrology and uh, you know, doing your, um, your, uh, the horoscope? Why do you think these people are already into Nostradamus? Whatever, people are making predictions. Everybody, you know, Jean Dixon, when I was a kid, was a big deal. And uh, you know, she predict, so supposedly predicted uh, Kennedy's assassination, and she also predicted the Beatles would die in a plane crash. Well, she was wrong about that, right? So all these things, these people are definitely, the unbelievers are definitely interested in what's coming. And so, uh, in fact, uh, when the first Gulf War took place, people in my job were coming up to me saying, is this, is this the uh, you know, Armageddon and all that? I said, no. And uh, so they, they, they're interested, and so prophecy is a great way to evangelize people and to get their ear and to talk to them about Jesus and get used as an instrument to get to Jesus and you need to believe in Jesus to be not only delivered from the wrath and the lake of fire but the wrath that's going to be poured out upon this world uh, with the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments of Revelation 6 through 18 during the final three and a half years of the 70th week and, uh, and also the, the judgment of the second advent of Christ which terminates that 70th week in the times of the Gentiles so there's a lot of benefit from doing this study most of the Bible two thirds of the Bible is yet to be fulfilled the prophecy so uh, if he literally fulfilled the prophecies, uh, we've seen many prophecies in, in Daniel 9.25, you've seen, and we're going to see today, prophecy of Daniel 9.25 and 26, they've been fulfilled literally in history. So that means the 70th week will as well, Daniel 9.27, when we get to it, after we uh, have left. So uh, a lot of things we can derive and a lot of benefit from this particular study of the day of the Lord. So let's look at Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24, it says, Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. 
And then it says to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Uh, my translation of those verses, 70 units, 70 units have been decreed for the people, benefit of your people, as well as for the benefit of your holy city, in order to put an end to the rebellion, and in addition to bring it sin to an end, as well as to atone for iniquity, likewise to bring about everlasting righteousness, as well as to seal up prophetic vision, and in addition to anoint the most holy place. The first three are related to the corporate sin of the nation of Israel. And it will come to an end at the second advent of Christ because then at that point, there will be a day, a national day of mourning in Israel when he comes back. It's the day of atonement being literally fulfilled. Like Jesus fulfilled Passover literally, the second, uh, the day of atonement will be literally fulfilled, one of those great seven great feasts of Israel. So that will be fulfilled at that time where there will be a national national repentance of the nation of Israel towards Jesus, meaning the majority of Jews at that time will believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, direct contrast, marked contrast to his first advent. And then the last three are related uh, either through the, the millennial reign of Christ we pointed out or you know, just the fact that prophecy is, is, uh, has been fulfilled, all the Bible's prophecies. So uh, with regards to the day of the Lord. So we see here that this, this particular verse sets the, sets the six-fold purpose, or the, the divine objectives of these 70 weeks, which is very important because we'll see uh, that we know that because we're gonna, when we talk about the Daniel 9.26 today, uh, there are some people that believe all, uh, all, the, all the 70 weeks have been fulfilled in history but that can't be because, uh, because the def- six-fold objectives of Daniel 9.24, the divine objectives, have not been fulfilled in history. In fact, you know, when have they anointed the most holy place? Th- that's the, the temple, right? Well, it, it hasn't been. The temple is not even there right now. So the preterists are wrong. So uh, we see also, that if you look at verse uh, 25 now, it says, No, and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there'll be seven, seven, uh, seven sevens, excuse me, and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. My translation of verse 25 goes as follows. It says, it says therefore, he says, please know, Gabriel says, yes, please carefully consider from the issuing of the command to restore, yes, to rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, there'll be seven units of seven years, and 62 units of seven years, it will be restored, yes, it will be rebuilt with a public square as well as a defensive trench, even during distressful times. Now, we have uh, turned to this chart that I, I came up with uh, years ago. I've developed it and uh, uh, try to uh, get it as best I can. It's the best I can get this uh, particular chart of the 70 weeks. But this, what Daniel uh, 9.25 just said, I put it up on the chart so you can see visually what I'm t- what's being said there. We saw that uh, that particular uh, verse is talking about the first 69 weeks, which is equivalent to 483 prophetic years. So the whole prophecy, 70 weeks, is 490 prophetic years. And remember, a week in this prophecy is not a literal week of seven, of seven days. So we saw that the first 69 weeks, which is 483 prophetic years, they are broken up into two sections. As it's, we have the seven weeks, which is equivalent to 49 years, and then contiguously, there's no, no gap between the, that seven, year, seven weeks period, 49 years, and the next 434 years, or equivalent to 62 weeks, where we have the completion of the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem to Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as we pointed out. So that this 
70th week begins with Artaxerxes Longimatus, his decree that's mentioned in Nehemiah, as we saw in Nehemiah chapter 2, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So if you look at your, your, your translations and the NIV again, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler. There's two rulers in this prophecy. They got the ruler here who's Jesus Christ in verse 25, but the other ruler is the Antichrist in verse 26. So if no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until anointed one the Messiah, the ruler comes and that's to come to present himself as the Messiah and they, he wept over the city. We saw this in the study of this verse. There'll be seven sevens. So there you go. If you look at the chart, there's the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, 444 BC and we have, and there's seven weeks, which is equivalent to 49 years. It ends with that particular six, uh, 49 years, ends with the completion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem marked by uh, uh, Nehemiah's prophecy, uh, the book of Nehemiah. And then it says, uh, so there'll be seven sevens, and then 62 sevens, which would be 434 years. There's no gap between them. And it says it will be, it, Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, and that's what the book of Nehemiah uh, uh, talks about. So we see here, if you look again on the, on the board, so Christ's triumphal entry, which we studied in our uh, previous class, is uh, the end of the 483rd prophetic year or the end of the 69th week. Now, uh, if you look verse 26, which we'll look at tonight, it says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. All of those events predicted there have been fulfilled in history, as we'll see. That's our verse tonight. Then it says in verse 27, he, and he's the ruler of the people who, who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, Herod's temple in 70 AD, the Romans. So he con will confirm a covenant with many, and that's a reference to the leadership of Israel, as we'll see, for one seven. So as you look on the chart on the board, Antichrist's treaty with Israel has not begun yet, has not taken place in history yet. And it ends this whole 70th week, which is, uh, these, the 70th week is equivalent to seven years. And it's according to the Jewish reckoning of time. Remember, it's a 360-day calendar that we're talking about. So we see that in Daniel 9.27, it says, He will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven, seven years. And in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that will cause desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Uh, my translation of those two verses, 26 and 27. Then after the 62 units of seven years, the Messiah will be executed so that he possesses nothing. Next, the people of the coming leader will destroy the city as well as the sanctuary. And indeed, its end will take place with the flood. Yes, there'll be war up to the end. Desolations have been decreed. Then verse 27. Then he the ruler that comes from the people who destroyed Jerusalem in the temple in 70 AD, the Romans. He, and he's a Roman, the Antichrist, will establish a firm covenant with the leaders, the leaders of Israel, which will be one unit of seven years. However, he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of this unit of seven years, while between the wings which results in abominations, he will cause desecration, indeed a, a decree, complete destruction, is poured out upon the desecrator, and the desecrator is a title, of course, for the Antichrist. So if you look at the chart on the board, 
we see that this 70th week, which begins with the Antichrist Treaty with Israel, uh, it's uh, broken out, it ends in, with the second advent of Christ. It's seven years, and it's 1260 days, a 360-day calendar. It's according to the Jewish reckoning of time. Reckoning of time. It's broken out into two sections. The first three and a half years, which is Paul talks about as the people living that time, they'll be saying there's peace and security. So evidently, Antichrist will be, bring peace and security to the world at that time. At least they think that he's going to. And then 1260 days into this treaty, he breaks it. And he commits two abominations. Well, one is the false prophet does, building an image of the Antichrist and making it come to life and telling the world to worship it. And that's, Jesus mentions that. It's standing in the temple. In Matthew 24, he talks about that. And then he tells when you, the Jews living at that time, when you see that, run, okay? Now, the, uh, the false prophet who promotes the worship of the Antichrist, he's talked about as the second beast in Revelation 13. There's two beasts there. One is the Antichrist, the first one. The second one is the false prophet, as we'll see when we go to there. And so uh, we see that uh, this, three, this beginning of the Armageddon campaign is what's taking place with that desecration of the temple. The other de abomination is not only the, the, the image of the Antichrist uh, standing in the temple, but also the Antichrist himself sitting down in the rebuilt Jewish temple between the wings of the cherubim and mimicking the Lord as he talked to Moses in the tabernacle. All right, so Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians 2, a passage we'll be looking at in detail, that, that he's going to be doing this, sitting down in the temple in the te on the rebuilt Ark of the Covenant and declaring himself God. Those are, so it's, the Hebrew says the, the word abominations in the plural, not singular, like the NIV has, okay? This is the benefit of going back to the original languages. Now, and we'll talk about that when we get to the verse, why this is the case, again, in detail. So, the last three and a half years of the 70th week, that's when you see the seven seal trumpet of bold judgments we've been talking about with Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. And there, in Revelation 6 to 18, these judgments are constitute the wrath of the Lamb and the Father upon a Christ-rejecting world. And the second advent brings that to an end, that programming of judgment, and the purpose of which is to get Israel to repent and trust in her Messiah, and it works. And we see many Gentiles during that time will get saved as well, and, but they will die for their faith. They'll be executed by the Antichrist. So uh, we, of course, are delivered from the wrath to come. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. You don't see the church in Revelation 6-18 ever mentioned in those chapters. Go home and read it. 6-18, you do not see any reference to the church, yet in the first five chapters, you see she's all over the place. You have the, the seven churches of Asia in the first three chapters. And then the church all of a sudden, John's up in heaven. Uh, he's told to come up here. It's a picture of the rapture. Revelation 4 and 5, he's in heaven. That's a picture of the church in heaven. And that's when Jesus breaks the seven seal the scroll, which is the title deed to earth, which triggers the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments of the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. Interesting, the first, the first seal that's broken, it actually marks the entrance of Antichrist uh, on the pages of history. And as we pointed out in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, 1 through 12, a passage we're going to be looking at in detail, because it says that the Antichrist cannot appear until the Holy Spirit who's not mentioned by name in the passage. He's called the restrainer. And he's the one who's restraining evil in the world today. But when he's removed, it says, then the Antichrist can manifest himself. And so he's indwelling each member of the church, the member of the body of Christ. And through, when we obey God's word, the spirit is working in us, the church, 
and to, to be the salt of the earth and to be a preservative to, for, preservator for the world and the culture that we live in, whether it's in America or wherever. Okay? So when we're removed at the rapture, then he's removed. Now remember, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are localized in a body of believers. It's the church. When we're gone, there'll be no believers on the earth for the first time ever in history. For the first time ever. What's interesting, the flip side of that is when Christ comes back at a second advent, he sends the elect angels out to take every unbeliever, Jew or Gentile, off the face of the earth and de deposit it into uh, Hades or the, the, the torments and then the lake of fire. So the millennium starts without any unbelievers. And that'll be the first time in history anybody's ever seen that. Now, so when we're gone, and so the Holy Spirit will still be around. Remember, he's omnipresent. So people will get saved, the Jews, the Gentiles, and be picking up their Bible. There'll be stuff left behind. The great series that, uh, uh, that was out not too, not too long. The books were very popular. And yeah, there'll be a lot of stuff that'll be out there, book stuff that the church left behind. And the Jews, I believe they'll be the first ones because they'll be uh, under distress. But you're going to see Gentiles get saved, Jews get saved, and uh, there'll be a lot. They still have their Bibles, right? And then they'll have the Spirit will be like He did to us, leading us to to our saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He'll be doing the same work once we're gone, too. All right. So this is the the chart that tells us basically what you just read in Daniel nine twenty four through twenty seven. So as promised, we're going to be looking at the events that are prophesied in Daniel 9.26, my translation on the board again, then after the 62 units of seven years, the Messiah will be executed so that he possesses nothing. We'll talk about what that means. Next, the people of the coming leader will destroy the city as well as the sanctuary. Indeed, its end will take place with a flood. Yes, there'll be war up to the end. Desolations have been decreed. So Gabriel, who's giving him this prophecy, and remember, Daniel was, pro he was praying he was prompted to pray, because the Spirit was leading him to pray, obviously, because he was reading Jeremiah's prophecy. We talked about that. We went to those passages. And he was, the, the prophecy was basically uh, the, the remnant of Judah would be in Babylon for 70 years. So he knew that this was coming to an end. And when we studied the book of Haggai on Sundays, we noted that period ended in 516 B.C. when they finished the temple. Okay? So... He's praying because of that. 70 years, okay? So that's why you said seven is a big number. And 70 in this, in this prophecy, uh, the 70 weeks of prophecy, right? So you can keep that in mind. So he's praying and he's interceding for the people. And, uh, you know, he goes back to what uh, um, King Solomon, when he dedicated his, the temple, he talks about the, the nation going into apostasy. And he talked about if your people intercede and repent and intercede and pray to you and uh, to your, to, toward your temple and you bring them back. And that's what Daniel did. He remembered Solomon's uh, dedication to the temple and ta Solomon talking about this, predicting uh, the apostasy in the nation so that when they're overseas and they're been dispossessed and, uh, uh, throughout the nations, they would be able to pray to the, t the Jewish temple. And that's what Daniel did. He, the book of Daniel says three times a day. And he, was a, he had a big, big, busy schedule. He was a high-ranking Babylonian official, worked directly under the greatest power of the world at that time, the greatest tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Persians liked him too. And uh, the Persians got him working in their government as well, and he became a great, powerful man there, so much so that people were uh, in, uh, in the government of the Persian leader uh, were, uh, were very much jealous of Daniel. 
So you had a, a Jewish exile, a Jewish exile, basically having the ear of the highest and most powerful people in the world of that time, pagan rulers. So keep that in mind, people, because God doesn't leave. He always keeps himself a witness, and there's always somebody getting the ear of President Biden that you don't realize. And God's working, and whoever the president is, and people in our government influencing things, you don't really, we don't really know everything that goes on, but you can count on, based on history, that God will always raise up people uh, in the body of Christ and throughout history, his people that can influence the leaders of nations. And Daniel's a perfect example of that. And so uh, we see that, uh, uh, that uh, the, 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 this particular Gabriel, he's actually going to give, he comes in answer to the prayer that, you know, Daniel was offering up this prayer. He's interceding for his people. And great prayer. When we do the doctrine of prayer, we're going to go study his prayer. We did that uh, with Winston Bible Ministries. And so he gets more than he ever bargained for. He was just asking that God would just fulfill what he said in his word. That's how you pray. You pray according to what his will is, and his will is revealed by the Spirit and the word of God. Okay? So prayer is only a problem-solving device if you're praying according to the will of God. So here he is praying, and God gives him much more. Remember the Ephesians 3.20? He can give us much more than we ever asked or, th- or thought of or dreamed of. And so he's doing this, and now God's going to give Daniel through the ga- Gabriel, the, a- the angel Gabriel. He's going to give them well, the prophetic outline of history. You, don't, you can't understand prophecy without understanding the 70 weeks prophecy. You cannot un- understand prophecy. If you look at the book of Daniel, and Daniel chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, the Lord is following the outline of Daniel's prophecy here. Okay? Revelation is as well. Okay? You can't even understand Revelation until you know your Old Testament and books like Zechariah and Daniel. You just can't understand it. Okay? So, because the Old Testament, Revelation's got filled with references to the Old Testament, and they're not explicitly saying, oh, this is in Isaiah or something. He alludes, John alludes to the Old Testament throughout the book of Revelation. So this is something you got to keep in mind. So Gabriel, who's giving him this prophecy, he proceeds to inform Daniel in Daniel 9.26 of the events which will transpire after the 483rd prophetic year. Now the first event is that, it, that will take place is the execution of the Messiah so that he possesses nothing which was fulfilled in history by Jesus of Nazareth when he was executed as a criminal by Rome through crucifixion. So he was executed as a criminal in the, most, in the worst form of capital punishment ever devised by man. I mean, what do they do today? They give him an injection. These, you know, some of these guys are butchers. They deserve worse than that, right? The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Oh, we're going to make it as, as humane as possible. We'll just give him a little injection. Meanwhile, he chopped somebody up in a million pieces and murdered somebody in cold blood. Yeah, that punishment fits the crime. No, it doesn't fly with me, and it doesn't fly with God, more importantly, because that's what his word says. I don't like that. The eye for an eye, tooth for tooth means the punishment must fit the crime. You murder somebody in cold blood, and after a jury, your appeals, you're convicted, you're executed. Okay? And they, he was executed. The Persians came up with crucifixion, and the Romans perfected it. And you read the book of Josephus, they, they were, they, they usually, the crosses would be, especially when they were rebelling against uh, uh, Rome, in between that Jewish war in 66 to 70 AD, there were crosses lined up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And that crucifixion was a horrific 
a horrific death. You died of suffocation. You basically couldn't hold yourself up anymore. Why do you think they, when they, they broke them, they took a ballot and they broke the, the tibia bones of the thieves on the cross, the thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus. So why? So they, they couldn't hold themselves up. So they didn't die of loss of blood or tetanus. They died of, of, of asphyxiation. They couldn't hold themselves up anymore. And you had, they would be on, up there for days. That's why Pilate was stunned. And the people who do the execution, the Roman execution guard, they could not believe this guy had died so quickly. They were like, he dismissed his spirit. They, they have seen men, they executed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men. And to see Jesus dismiss his spirit, you've never seen anybody do that. These hard Roman soldiers were in awe of what they saw. Because this guy did not die like any human being, ordinary human being. I've never, I, I know how people die on crucifixion, and he didn't die that way. He was out of here after three hours, after six hours on the cross. He was out of here, dismissed his spirit. Right? So they were shocked by that. Pilate was like, he's dead. They came to him, and then they just threw a spear in his side and with his heart. And, of course, we know now that the blood and the serum coagulate in the heart after death and post-mortem, and that's what came out. And so they, they knew, okay, he's dead. Okay, they just wanted to make sure, all right? And that's why they did. They didn't bother breaking the bone, his, his tibia bones. And, and the tibia bone, I broken that and clean like that. I can't imagine that. I mean, that had been unbelievably horrific to die a crucifixion. It's horrible. So here is our Lord. You know, he suffered the wrath of God being abandoned by his heavenly father, which, by the way, believe it or not, was much more incredibly painful for him than, getting his, than, than uh, suffering the, the, the torture of the crucifixion and the shame of it because they were crucified naked. They didn't, they, the Jesus was naked on that cross. There was no little, you know, he didn't have his underwear on, okay? He was naked on the cross. They meant it to be as shameful, and they did it for the worst hardened criminals. Roman, sold, Roman uh, citizens, they were, they, that was the worst, they, they, they didn't crucify Roman citizens unless it was for tre uh, treason or something like that. So they, they, didn't, went, they, they didn't do that. They, they died some other way. Like Paul's a Roman citizen, they decapitate him, which is actually pretty quick. Boom, you're done. You know, you get your head chopped off and it's over, okay? So the, with crucifixion, they, they tortured you, okay? So that is what Jesus is being referred to. He's being, he had been executed. It was predicted in the book of Daniel back in the 6th century B.C. Six centuries before Jesus was executed, uh, this took place. It was pro prophesied. So the fact that the Messiah would possess nothing as a result of this execution was also fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth since it denotes the fact that he did not establish in bodily form his millennial reign on the earth. That's what it means. He, he had nothing. It's because he did, not, he did not have his kingdom. Remember, he's talking from God's perspective here with, with Gabriel speaking to Daniel about this prophecy. He had nothing in the sense he had no kingdom. Okay? So the millennial reign of Christ did not take place as a result of Israel rejecting Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah and king. Now, thus, Gabriel's statement here and Daniel 9.26 makes crystal clear that there's a time gap between the 69th and the 70th week. Now, you remember, some of the things I say here are you might not find quite interesting, okay? Or you, might, you should know what I'm saying because you're going to run into somebody, I guarantee you, because God's going to see, he's going to do a test, and he'll bring in somebody and he'll talk about this and say, well, the 70th week has been fulfilled in history. And I'm going to talk about things that they're going to say, 
Okay, so you're ready for them. Okay, so there's people who listen on the podcast. Western uh, Doctrine Bible Ministry is out on the podcast I send out. There's the, it's on our website. And so there are people all around the world. When the business meeting happened, the business, when, once Fred has done his thing, okay, I'm going to j- take in some of the websites and show you the people around the world that are listening to the classes or reading our material. Okay? So it's a worldwide ministry. So I, I, I'm, I'm speaking to a much bigger audience than what's in front of me re- in reality when it comes down to it. So we need to understand that people, they're called preterists, and they believe that whole prophecy has been fulfilled. Daniel 9.27 has been fulfilled in the first century. And I'm going to show you that can't be the case. They don't believe in a time gap between Daniel 9.26 and 27. But there is. And I'm going to give you my reasons why that is and why that's important because it means Antichrist hasn't shown up on the scene yet. And there are different people who think that uh, Daniel 9.27 has been fulfilled by different people in history, and it's just not the case because nothing in history corresponds to what's being said in the prophecy of Daniel 9.27. So remember, people, the 62 uh, weeks are 62 units of seven years or 434 prophetic years, and they immediately follow the first seven weeks, which are seven units of seven years or 49 prophetic years. Now, there's no time gap in between the seven units of seven years or first seven weeks of the prophecy and the 62 units of seven years or 434 prophetic years. So here, uh, they they actually have to be added together, as I pointed out to you with a chart. In this prophecy, they're continuous. In other words, no break in between, okay? They're consecutive. They are added together in this prophecy and, they, and thus constitute 69 weeks, which are again 60 unit, 69 units of seven years, or we could say 483 prophetic years. So here, in Daniel 9.26, Gabriel informs Daniel that the execution of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will take place after the 62 weeks, i.e. after the 62 units of seven years, or i.e., after the 434 prophetic years. So, thus, the execution is after the 69 weeks, i.e. the 69 units of seven years, which again are 483 prophetic years. So, the 70th week does not begin until the treaty between the prince who is to come and Israel is established and the execution of the Messiah comes before this treaty. Look again at Daniel 9.26 with me. Uh, in your Bibles. Daniel 9, 26 and 27. After the 62 sevens, the, seven, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing, no kingdom. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. Who's the he? He has to be this ruler who comes from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Can't be Jesus Christ, because he's never done anything like this in history. He doesn't break treaties or covenants. So he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out. So, we see that the 70th week does not begin until the treaty between the prince who is to come and Israel is established and the execution of the Messiah comes before this treaty. So therefore, therefore, uh, those interpreters who argue there's no time gap 
between the 69th and the 70th week are an era. They're primarily preterists, we call them. They believe that the events of the tribulation period, the second half, they come in the, during, in the first century AD. Okay? So those interpreters who argue that there's no time gap between the 69th and 70th week are an error, and so consequently the 70th week is still yet future. There are several major factors which support the view that there's a time gap between the fulfillment of the 69th week and the 70th. First, we see that the six divine objectors I mentioned, hang on to that when we talk about this tonight, this verse. The first six divine objectives that we noted in detail, which appear in Daniel 9.24, must be fulfilled within the 70 weeks. However, they have emphatically not been fulfilled in history. Where's the examples, Bill? I'll give you them. For instance, the objective of anointing the most holy place has not taken place within the 490 years. The holy place was destroyed in Daniel 9.26, but then in Daniel 9.27, we see it rebuilt because it says sacrifice were, sacrifices were allowed under the covenant with Antichrist and the false uh, the, uh, Israel. However, this temple does not presently exist today, does it? Therefore, one must see a future fulfillment during the 70th week of Daniel 9.27, which thus necessitates a time gap, which corresponds to the church age, as we noted. So if you look at the chart on the board, we are in this period that falls in Daniel 9.26. It's it, the gap, it's, Daniel 9.26 is, talks about events which were fulfilled in the first century, Christ's crucifixion, the destruction of the temple, and the, destruct, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. That took place and that took place within the church age because the church age began in June of 33 AD in the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 2. And it ends with the rapture of the church, which is imminent. So it's been going on for 2,000 years, over 2,000 years. It was a mystery dispensation, not known to Old Testament saints. They did not know the church age. How do you know that? Well, if you read Paul and Ephesians, a book I'm teaching on now, we're going to teach here. I'm working on it now. Daniel, uh, Ephesians 3. It talks about that Jewish and Gentile believers during the church age, this never ever happened in history, Jewish and Gentile believers are co-heirs, they're co-members of the body of Christ, and they're co-partakers of the messianic promise through faith in Jesus Christ, the justification, and the baptism of the Spirit, which took place at justification, which placed them in union with Christ and identified the church age believer, both Jew and Gentile, with Jesus Christ. That's never happened in history. But it started happening with the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD and with the baptism of the Spirit for, uh, being, uh, taking place for the first time among Jewish believers, Peter's uh, uh, gospel message to the Jews there and, and on the day of Pentecost. And then it started, the first time it happened with the Gentiles, about, um, with a Roman soldier and his family, centurion. I find that interesting. Roman soldier, Gentile. And that's when the baptism of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit started happening with the Gentile believers. And then the baptism of the Spirit identifies with us with Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, right here, the Father. And thus, Jewish and Gentile believers are part of the new humanity that's going to reign over this earth with Jesus Christ during his millennial reign, which is going to dispossess Satan, the fallen angels, who are presently ruling this earth now. So we, with Jesus, are going to come to the rescue and save this world. Think about that. That's right. He's taken bride of Christ and Jesus. In fact, all the creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. Us. Revealing us in our resurrection bodies. The world doesn't know who we really are. God knows. 
So this church age falls uh, in a period uh, we, that between the gap between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. In this church age, we don't know when it's the next prophetic event we're waiting for. You can't put a time on it because nowhere in the, the, the writers of the New Testament and Jesus, who spoke about it first in John 14, 1 through 3, we're going to go through all these passages in this series about that. He talks about it at first. And then you see Paul talks about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 52-58, he calls it a mystery. And not known to Old Testament saints, and it's the resurrection of the church. Then a chapter talks about the resurrection. And then he sees the timing of the rapture is presented in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. All right, it's mentioned there. And other places like Philippians 3, 20 and 21, talking about the resurrection body of the believer. That'll be like Christ's body. That's going to happen at the rapture. And then John talks about it in 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3. And he says, and he uses this imminency of the rapture and getting a body like Christ and being perfected in a resurrection body as motivation to be, live a, live, experience a sanctification. In other words, to experience fellowship with God. So we are the church age, but this can't happen. The 70th week can't happen again until we are out of here. So another major factor, people, another major factor that, t- that teaches us there's a time gap between Daniel 9.20, the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. Another major factor supporting the time gap is that he, in Daniel 9.27, and I pointed out to you, the very first, the he at the beginning of the verse refers to the prince who is to come. Because why? It rules the grammar, really. The reason why is because in Daniel 9.26, if one follows the rules of grammar, which would support the view that the nearest antecedent for the he, in reference, in verse 27, is the prince who is to come in Daniel 9, 26. So what do you mean, what do you mean by uh, rules of grammar and uh, nearest antecedent? Well, come on, you talk about nearest antecedent in English class, remember? <laughs> maybe, you don't, maybe you didn't, I don't know. I went to know it high and they taught me that, So, which is amazing. So he, what's the nearest antecedent? Who can we find in the text? Well, we know the anointed one, that's the Messiah, right? He's cut off. But is it him? No, because the Antichrist is spoken about after him. This ruler, he's the nearest antecedent, so he has to be the he. Couldn't be Jesus either, because when did he make a covenant with Israel for seven years? Show me in history. It's not there, okay? So, then we have connected to this. Connected to this, this third point, is that if the he in Daniel 9.27 is the Messiah like some erroneously believe. And I ran into a guy who wrote me, and he was, he was all over me. He was like, oh, it's, it's Jesus. Like, how? Oh. I just said, pointing point this out to him. I was like, but again, he, he will not listen. He will not humble. And he, I, 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 you have to be patient with people like that because what's happened is, is that they're married to their theological system. They're probably some Calvinist or their covenant theologian. And they're, they've been, in other words, this is what they've been taught. Okay, so you can be patient with people like that, and I, I, it makes me laugh when he starts going off on me and writing and stuff. And I'm like, okay, okay, that's all. so. You have to be patient. Okay, just give him the, what what it is, and, and try to be right to the point, and don't get into all the rhetoric and name calling or whatever. And uh, you know, because some people call you a heretic, and I was like, I, they don't even know what heresy is for crying out loud. If you say an heretic, so and I went, and I gave him the evidence. 
but I get more people on this passage that go after me <laughs> in, in messages. It's pretty funny. So again, this, connected to this third point is that if the he, and Daniel 9.27 is the Messiah, then one cannot reconcile the fact that the temple sacrifices continued, after, uh, continued until 70 AD, over 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And furthermore, the he in Daniel 9.27 breaks the covenant. Again, at what point in history do we see Jesus Christ make a covenant with the Jews and then break it? It's never happened. So there is nothing in the New Testament which would even suggest this. Another major factor, let's move on. Another major factor which supports the time gap is that the events mentioned in the last three and a half years of Daniel 9.27 fit perfectly with the events described in the book of Revelation. Furthermore, if the first 69 weeks have been literally fulfilled in history, then we would expect the 70th week to be as well. And of course, we have not seen a literal fulfillment in history of the 70th week. We have never seen a Roman dictator, where is Rome anyways, come and make a seven-year treaty with Israel and then break it in the middle of this seven-year period, nor have we seen in history a Roman dictator put a stop to the sacrifices in the temple and in fact, no temple is standing in Israel today. Never. This is ridiculous. So, however, we can say this though, Christ's first advent and presentation of himself to the nation of Israel as her king has taken place literally in history as recorded in the Gospels and thus fulfilling literally Daniel 9.25. We've also seen the fulfillment of Daniel 9.26 and the cutting off of the Messiah, the execution after his presentation, which is recorded in the Gospels. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans as predicted in Daniel 9.26. Thus it follows that if Daniel 9.25 and 26 were literally fulfilled in history, then we can expect the same for Daniel 9.27. Now stop for a second. One of the benefits of knowing this is you could go to somebody who's a non-believer. You know, we talk about, you, you could bring in politics, whatever you want to talk about in the Middle East, especially with Israel and this going on here. You could bring this stuff in. And you know, you know, you know why I believe the Bible? People say, why do you believe the Bible, Bill? And I say, here you go. I'll give you, I'll give you some pro prophecies. All, all these the, verses 25 and 26 of the prophecy have been literally fulfilled. Okay, Nostradamus, are you kidding me? Have you ever seen some of the stuff that he supposedly predicted? It's a joke. Gene Dixon, it's a joke. It's a joke. It's not even close to the Bible. And people will just refuse it. Oh, that's just your interpretation. You have that? I go, really? Okay, what's your interpretation? You're saying I'm wrong only because you don't want to believe it, and you say that's my interpretation. No, that's what the text says, and that's what history says. It's not my opinion. You want me to look, give you historical events? The crucifixion of Christ, all right? The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Everybody knows that. Any historian would tell you, yeah, that's, that's how. Jesus did, whether you like him or not, he did get crucified. He was executed by the Romans. Daniel 9.26 talks about it. So you just get three prophecies right there in Daniel 9.26. And you're going to tell me, you want to know why I studied the Bible my whole life? My, adult, my whole adult life. I was saved in 19 and got serious probably around mid, mid, little, around early to mid-20s. I spent my whole, I'm 62. You want to know why? It's the truth. It's not a lie. I didn't, you know, it's obvious to me. The, the more I do study this, the Bible, and study these things, I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. 
course it's the word of God. Yes, of course, I'm going to live my life according to everything it says. I'm willing to die for the book. You kidding me? Absolutely. I'm going to, and, and, I, and the other thing is, you got to look at, the, look at the, what the word of God has done to our lives. Change lives. Like to change mine. I mean, when you, saw me, when you saw me before I got saved, oh my gosh. I probably, you probably were just as much as nut that I was, right? You know, so, but guess God, God can change and do miracles. And he did. And the, this book is worth devoting your life to and learning it. Being a serious student of the word of God like many of you are. Anybody in this room, I hear it almost all the time. So yeah, you, you care about the word of God and you're wise. You're smart, in other words. Dummies, fools, and I'm talking about Christians, don't take the time to study the Bible. So I'm talking to this young kid in there and this other guy. And you know what they're really looking for? They were talking about, you know, because they, they had their pastors, and this guy, his father was a pastor, and he said he didn't really know this stuff that this guy, Les Feldick, he's very, he's, he went over, he's on television. He's been, he lived in Oklahoma. You know, he's like drawing the board. You ever see him? He, he, he's good. He was really good. One of the few guys I'd ever even look at on television. Most of them are just baloney. And so these, these people, and this is, people don't realize what's going on. There are a lot of Christians that are not getting fed in their churches. They don't get the word of God. They're looking for the word of God depth, these people I'm talking to. I said, Jesus, come on down. I mean, I'm going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through Habakkuk, and I'm doing the Day of the Lord series. We've done all these other stuff. Come on down. You're looking for in-depth study. You came to the right place. You are in the perfect town right now. This ministry, this ministry does that. So there's a lot of people out there. And that's why I say these corporate prayer meetings are big. You have individual prayer meetings. Those people I told you to pray for, pray. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't get discouraged because I believe, I'm sure of it, they're going to come through the doors. Yeah, it may not be like in droves, but one, a little bit here, a little bit there. We'll see. I believe it. So, if God, so here we have the word of God. You can hang your hat on, devote your life to Govern your life by it. The gift of the Spirit has given you the ability to understand that spiritual phenomenon that's in the Bible and use this book to evangelize people, show them these prophecies, that they will live. This one verse has literally been fulfilled in history. Very, it's fascinating. So, again, we see that uh, we've, also, we've seen the fulfillment of Daniel 9.26. Jerusalem, the temple were destroyed as predicted uh, by the Romans, as predicted in Daniel 9.26, thus it follows. That if Daniel 9.25 and 26 were fulfilled literally in history, then we can expect the same for Daniel 9.27 now, right? Yeah. Gabriel then proceeds to tell Daniel here that there will be a second event following the execution of the Messiah. Namely, the people of the coming leader will destroy the city as well as the sanctuary. Gabriel then advances upon it and uh, by informing him that Jerusalem's end will take place with a flood, which again is a metaphor for sudden destruction by war. Now, we, I think we saw that in Habakkuk's uh, the other, uh, classes previously. Now, like the first event, these second and third events uh, f- that were fulfilled in Daniel 9.26 have been fulfilled in history as well because in 70 AD, the Roman armies under Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed this city as well as Herod's temple. This destruction was not only the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 9.26, but also fulfilled the Lord Jesus Christ's prophecy of the destruction of the city in Luke 19, 
four, chapters 19, verses 43 and 44, we, when, before the, the snowstorm or the ice storm, we studied this, that, 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 about this. And also the temple. Jesus predicted the temple would fall. Matthew 24, 2, Luke 21, 6. And you could also say, what is it, uh, Dan, uh, John 2. You know, this, uh, this temple, you know, he talks about the resurrection, you know, his, his raising his body up. You know, he's saying that, that temple, it'll be, it'll be destroyed. So we see that in A.D. 70, less than 40 years after Christ's prophecy, the Roman legions of Titus besieged Jerusalem. It was between 66 and 70 A.D. that this war took place. We talked about this in relation to Jude, remember? First book, I, right after, after the beginning, I, I hit you with Jew, which is like a tough book to interpret. We go, you guys did great with Jude. I was like, I can't, these guys handled Jude. And Jude is the, trying to protect the church from these Jewish zealots who were the hardcore radical right. They weren't liberals. They were warriors and fighters, and they were trying to throw off the yoke of Rome because they were looking at the prophecies of Daniel and saying that uh, the, the Messiah is going to come and they were to rebel against the Romans, and the Messiah would come and, 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 and win the, carry the day for them. They were wrong. And Jude didn't want them to go in with the Christian community to go in with these Jewish zealots. In fact, in the, in the Gospels you read, there was a Jewish zealot. And I love in the movie, that, the show, The Chosen, they send him, Simon the Zealot, out with Matthew. If those two would hate each other in Jewish society, I thought that was perfect the way they did that because the Jews, the Jews had nothing to do with tax collectors because they were considered traitors. You had to go, if you want to get with a woman, good. You have to go with a prostitute, not with one of the daughters of the Jews, because they're not going to give her their daughters to you. You're a traitor. And so they were, with the, with the prostitutes, they were the outscarring of Jewish society. <laughs> you, had, you had Jesus as a tax collector, and he's got a zealot. Talk about, wow, okay? But Jews, to protect the Christian community, the Jewish Christian community, during that period of the, that leading up, to the Jewish-Roman War in 66 to 70 AD. Now the bloodthirsty cry of the people, the, the bloodthirsty cry of the people in Dan, uh, Matthew 9, uh, 27, 23, when, remember, they said, let Jesus be crucified, and in Matthew 27, 25, they said this, amazingly, let his blood be on us and on our children. And guess what? It has for 2,000 years. It had a tragic fulfillment. For 40 years later, the Roman legions, led by Titus, sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the Herodian temple and slaughtered the citizens of Jerusalem. The Romans hated fighting those people. They were tough. You hear the stories of Masada? These guys were fought right to the very last man. They were incredible fighters, the, Jew, the Jewish zealots and everything. The Romans hated them. They hated, they, they, hated, they hated them so much that when they got the temple, do you know that Titus said, do not destroy that temple. And the soldiers said, screw you, we're going to, as we say in Massachusetts, and we're going to do it. And they, were, they set that thing fire on fire. They ignored the order because they hated those Jews. Those Jewish cells were fighting them. It was a terrible, terrible war. It cost Rome a lot of blood and men. And they, they, that was, in fact, they were very proud of that victory. Because you, you go to Italy, uh, uh, go to Rome today, and you'll see the Arch of Titus. Okay? And that's, you know what that is? That's the Roman triumphal procession. Sic transit gloria mundum. When he comes in, and the glory of Rome, shall two, two shall pass away. Little guy behind the, 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 the leader of uh, Rome, and, you know, the, the, the general, the victorious general, to keep him humble. 
and they brought in the Jewish captives and then they executed them, you know. The lights just flicker there. So anyways, that must have been an amen from the Holy Spirit. Anyways, notice in Daniel 9, 26, that Gabriel informs Daniel that it will be the people and not the coming leader of the, who will destroy Jerusalem in the temple. And also remember, Antichrist does not destroy Jerusalem. He doesn't destroy Jerusalem in the temple according to the book of Revelation. You know why? Because he basically, he's against Jesus Christ. He wants to take Jerusalem and he wants to reign over the earth from Jerusalem like it's predicted to Jesus would. Right? Yeah. Nowhere is he said to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. He's trying to keep it going. So Zechariah chapter 12, verses, and, chapter 12 and 14, they teach that, the, that Jerusalem will be under attack, but some Jews will continue to fight in the city until the second advent of Christ. The coming leader is a reference to Antichrist that we see in Daniel 9, 26 uh, and 27. It's not a reference to Jesus Christ because he's not a Roman. And furthermore, the Messiah is said to be executed in the first statement of verse 26. So this coming leader comes after the execution of the Messiah. And the coming leader is also not a reference to the Roman general Titus, some say that, who led the siege against Jerusalem in 70 AD. And why? Because the emphasis of the passage is upon the people. Okay, not the man. He doesn't destroy the temple, the, 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 the ruler that comes from these people. It's the people's where the emphasis, it's the people that destroyed the temple, not a leader, they say it. It's also stated this way because the prophecy would link the Roman destruction with the event which took place in 70 AD while simultaneously setting up Antichrist to be linked to the first he in Daniel 9.27 and the seventh, 70th week. And the coming leader, another name put forth is Antiochus Epiphanes IV because he, he didn't destroy Jerusalem and the temple. He can't be it. Antiochus Epiphanes IV is actually predicted, talked about in Daniel chapter 8. He's talked about, he, he was predicted that he would come on the scene. He's similar, but he doesn't do what Daniel 9.27 says. So therefore, this second event that's mentioned in Daniel 9.26 makes clear that the people and the coming leader will not appear on the pages of history at the same time. And Daniel 9.27 also makes crystal clear that the coming leader is the future persecutor of the nation of Israel during the 70th week or the 70th unit of seven years. So the phrase... And Daniel 9.26, the people of the coming leader, simply means that this coming leader will originate from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the Herodian temple in 70 AD. Thus, history has made clear that the first two events which are prophesied to take place after the 69th week are, have yet have been, have been fulfilled in history. And the last event is that there'll be war up to the end of the 70th week for the Jewish people in their capital city. And desolations have been decreed by God for Jerusalem and this too has been fulfilled in history. <clears throat> so, we need to understand that these events, okay, where we get derived from this study, is there is a gap between the 69th and 70th week. The 70th week can't begin until Antichrist makes the treaty. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, the spirit who indwells the church must be removed before he can even manifest himself to the world. God won't permit it. Why? Because the church is indwelt by the Spirit, when the church is obeying the Spirit, we are the salt of the earth. We are the one that's preserving the country and, the prolifer and stopping the proliferation of evil. Your prayers, your practicing the Word of God, your influence in your daily life, that is what preserves the nation, and this is what the United States needs, is the church to get on fire for God and continue to do that and hold off <laughs> this, uh, the uh, tribulation period from starting, get more people saved, 
uh, and, uh, in, in, in the, in, for the body of Christ and thus bringing glory to God. So let's close in prayer. Thank you for uh, patiently uh, watch, uh, listening to uh, the lesson and I hope it was a blessing to you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for everyone again here this evening. We pray this lesson be a great blessing to you people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray. Amen. I'll sing you a song, get out of here. <coughs> Thank you.